Welcome to the Open Div Summit, a four-day pod conference around spirituality and meaning-making in the modern world. Each day, February 25th to 28th, we'll be releasing 10 to 20 pre-recorded conversations with top academics, theologians, clergy, and secular community leaders. In addition, each day we're hosting several live, interactive events on Zoom. We'd love to see you there. For more, check out summit.opendiv.org. Today's conversation is with Wesley J. Wilder. Wesley is Professor of Philosophy, Theology, and Ethics, and Professor in the Faculty of Computing and Data Sciences at Boston University. He is a philosopher specializing in the scientific study of complex human social systems, and is author or editor of 20 books and 150 articles and book chapters. He is also the Executive Director of the Center for Mind and Culture, an organization devoted to nonpartisan scientific research into the mind culture nexus, and he is the principal investigator on a variety of research initiatives including some that apply tools from computer modeling and simulation to the scientific study of religion. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Wesley, really excited to have you here, talk more about your work. Maybe just to start, I want to talk about a little bit of the, the some of the papers you've written and, and the book you have coming up, but just to start, I know the way you approach kind of the, the study of religion is a little bit different than maybe it has historically been approached in the field. Can you talk a little bit more about what it means to approach religious studies in this multidisciplinary way? What is the biocultural approach to the study of religion look like? Traditionally, religious studies has been essentially a humanities exercise. It's been focused on by philosophers or text people or historians or interpretive social scientists. And it's not been terribly common to have empirical sociologists or evolutionary theorists or neuroscientists or uh, empirical psychologists involved. But they have been picking up the pace in their publications to the point that publications using scientific approaches number about the same as publications using humanities approaches, which is a big change in the academic study of religion. That means that you've got pretty much every part of the university at this point having something to say about what religion is. I'm committed to trying to take account of all of those insights, the humanities insights and the scientific insights, to produce more compelling interpretations of religion that are more practical, more geared into more parts of the university and ultimately more intellectually satisfying as we seek to try and understand where religion came from, how it functions and where it's headed. Right. And it seems like traditionally people really sat on one of the two sides of the spectrum, right? Either very humanities focused or very, very science or, or maybe statistical analysis focused. And I have also heard the dichotomy of like, you know, kind of inside and outside religion as another place that academics kind of are seated, right? Either coming from the more experiential practitioner side versus the outsider academic side. How, how does the kind of approach you're talking about bridge those, those gaps? On the first issue, the fact that people are tending to use humanities approaches or science approaches is causing a big problem. The, the problem is that most of the really interesting, fruitful theories about religion are coming from the science side, but those scientists aren't benefiting from the interpretive skills of the humanities people. And the humanities people are often just ignoring work that they consider to be uh, inappropriately framed from a humanities perspective. Right. So you've got this disconnect and it's just... Uh, it's it's unnecessary and it should be fixed by actually putting the pieces together. The other contrast you mentioned between the insiders who study religion as an expression of their own religiosity versus 
the outsiders who think of it as an object of study in the same way that you would study political economy or physics or biology or something like that. That contrast is very interesting. There's a kind of bias associated with studying religion to serve your own personal spiritual interests that leaves a lot of people in universities very uncomfortable. They would rather be operating in a more neutral way. So they don't mind if people have personal religious convictions, but they would like them to bracket those convictions when they get into the studying of religion. And yet there are certain ways in which you can't avoid the fact that you're tangled up in your subject matter. After all, if you're studying something that's so comprehensive in the way that religion is, it involves every part of your life and every aspect of you that it's difficult to fully abstract from those things. So that's an ongoing puzzle. And it has led to a rejection of theology from religious studies, which has been one kind of move, but also an affirmation of the importance of spiritual quests, even outside of religious identities, and maybe in conjunction with inquiry inside religious studies. I think that's very much under-resolved at this point. It's going to take several more decades for that to shake out. Right, right. And so when you say spiritual quest outside of traditional religious space, what, what does that kind of mean? Yeah, in a little more depth. Fascinating thing about spirituality is that it, it seems like it means something different to everyone, but in fact, there really are patterns in the way spirituality gets used. And we've, we've developed an instrument called the Dimensions of Spirituality Inventory that has 21 different dimensions in it. And they cluster in very interesting ways. But when you apply that instrument to people who are not identified as religious, who are nuns or who are post-religious or atheist or agnostic or humanist or something else, what you see is that they do have very powerful spiritual yearnings. Those spiritual yearnings might be shaped differently than traditional religious people, but they're still there and they are strong and they drive people's life choices, the way they spend their time, their energy, the sorts of moral commitments that they have, definitely shaped by all of that. So it looks to us like people who don't identify as religious have a very powerful kind of spiritual journey underway, but not just one kind. There isn't as yet any real uh, unified way of doing spirituality outside of religion. It's happening in a hundred different ways. But there are patterns that's important to know. Right. And what are some of those patterns? Yeah. One of the kinds of patterns is people for whom spirituality has especially to do with physicality, it has to do with the way their bodies move, it has to do with the uh, sorts of exercise they do, the sorts of yoga routines that they use. That's one type of pattern. Uh, another type a pattern has to do with togetherness, not in the sense of conforming to the expectations of an established religious tradition, but finding novel ways of connecting with people so that you feel as though your, your deepest spiritual self is somehow understood by those other people, that it's common ground, that it's a subject matter that you can talk about. And uh, a, th a third type is something to do with social action, taking what you believe most fundamentally about what's good in the world and turning it into action that can be realized in a society that gives you the freedom to express yourself in those ways. So that'd be three fairly large kinds, uh, fairly large clusters, lots of diversity within each one, of course, but they're certainly there and there's some others as well. Right, right. So interesting. And, and that definitely mirrors, I think, a lot of the communities that I've seen as someone who's tried to navigate some of these spaces as well. 
kind of deepening into or offering something in one of those archetypes. You know, I'm curious, one of the questions that I often sit with um, in this space where it seems like there's a lot of new territory to map is, you know, how do some of these instruments actually kind of get created? And so I'm curious for, for this specific instrument with, you know, this, this 21 different aspects, did that come from a lot of kind of more like ethnographic work or how, how did you all come to those, those indicators? That's a very good question. There's the possibility of bias when you develop a measure like that. So you have to take measures to make sure that you don't fall into that trap. We took several paths. For a start, there'd been some pre-existing qualitative research by Professor Nancy Ammerman of Boston University and, and some others who had been, based on in-depth interviews with people, had been identifying patterns in people's spirituality and the way they use the word spirituality. That's one thing. The second thing is read a ton of literature across the world's traditions to try and identify what dimensions of spirituality are alive and well at the moment. And then the third thing is we talked to a lot of people after we had hypotheses about those spiritual aspects and made sure we weren't missing something. A classic example of something that we missed, the kinesthetic dimension of religiosity wasn't among our dimensions originally until we started talking to people and they pointed out it's just missing and it showed us how much in our own heads we were as academics. So in any event, those three methods uh, allowed us to construct what I think is a fairly compelling and cross-culturally reasonably viable way of understanding the aspects of spirituality. The way they cluster is an interesting question and we can use statistical techniques to find out the way they clustered. We had an hypothesis about the way these 21 dimensions would cluster, and it was fairly meaningful. But when we ran the statistics to see how the 21 dimensions cluster, we got something quite different. And not only different, but actually insightfully different. I found out things about myself by taking the dimensions of spiritual spirituality right. to uh, that uh, I hadn't been ready for. So anyway, it turns out to be productive of insights, even for the people who help create it, which is always encouraging. Yeah, I mean, I think that's so interesting. And uh, I know personally, I kind of came to, to try and study psychology of religion or theology from a kind of an outsider perspective, trying to just understand it more. And then it ended up resulting in a whole bunch of additional questions for myself about what I believed about the world and how I navigated the world, how I saw myself versus other groups and all these things. Um, hmm. So very, very, very cool. Would you be open to sharing what, what came up for you with the, the spiritual inventory if it's, if it's not too personal? All right. Yeah, no, that's fine. I'll give you a couple of examples. One is yeah. that I scored way, way higher than the average person taking this on an aspect of spirituality called non-attachment. If you're a Buddhist, then you'll understand non-attachment immediately, but it, uh, I'm deeply influenced by Buddhism, and I think that's one of the most important features of my spirituality. I strive for that every day, and I just had never thought about it in those terms until the survey pointed it out to me, and of, of course it was uh, believable. And on, on the other side, I'm, I kind of flatline on belief in supernatural agents, gods or demons or ghosts or angels or jinns or uh, you know, supernatural souls that wander the earth. Uh, uh, I just um, I, I don't respond in those areas at all. So I'm way, way, way below the regular population on all of those kinds of things. It's just not something that's important to me. I consider myself then a, a post-supernaturalist and 
Of course, I knew that intellectually, but seeing the contrast between me and the average respondent really drove it home exactly how far I've gone in that direction, away from the general population. Right, right. That's so interesting. Yeah, I imagine seeing it in context rather than just seeing your own kind of views uh, in a silo could be really informing. We have an instant feedback survey site where this uh, survey is offered at exploringmyreligion.org. And in that instant feedback, you actually see your results compared to other people who've taken the survey. So uh, you, you always get insights that come from that contrast. And that's right. a part of what the site does is to just build that way. Right, right. And it seems like a lot of the value there is just, you know, because some of this is just maybe so natural to our worldviews, it's kind of like the fish in water doesn't recognize that, you know, some fundamental right. constructs are, are different or are unique compared to the general population. Yes, I think so. So you mentioned um, you kind of have a, a post-supernaturalist, post-supernatural orientation yourself and your paper on post-supernatural societies, the, the first kind of pathway into your work that I read. And I was wondering if you could just talk us a little bit through that paper, because I think it's such an interesting application of simulation and using using computational methodologies to really test different theories. Um, and I know in reading it and some of the takeaways you had around what sustains post-supernaturalist you know, ideologies in the society and the threats to a post-supernaturalist society um, were, were very both immediately like intuitive and, and, and insightful. So yeah, I would love if you could just maybe talk a little bit more about the paper's approach, what we were testing and, and kind of what you eventually found. I'd be glad to. The traditional version of secularization theory pictures this sort of one-way traffic from supernaturalism and superstition and religiously inflected cultures and institutions, all of that moving towards a society where secular norms determine the way everything operates. You've got secular institutions instead of religious ones and people stop believing in traditional religious doctrines and all the rest. That progress, as secularists would call it, that that progress is something that we should treasure and welcome, whereas, of course, traditional religious people see it as a terrifying prospect of somehow having their entire worldview wiped out from the history of the species. Right. We were, uh, the group that produced this was pretty convinced that we actually have two-way traffic. You can head towards post-supernatural cultures secular cultures under certain conditions but change those conditions and you would head back in the other direction so contrary to traditional secularization theory we were imagining two-way traffic and the the key conditions that allow you to move towards the post-supernatural culture are genuinely interesting there's a need for solid education in humanities and in the sciences and that education actually takes away the need for supernatural explanations for things. Then you've got a pluralistic attitude to cultural and religious diversity. When that's in play, you tend to no longer think of your own viewpoint as absolute because there are other views that you have a pluralistically welcoming attitude towards. Then there's the idea of relieving stress associated with difficult economic conditions. So something called existential security, if you've got existential security that's high, 
then you're not worried about your kids or your grandkids so much. And you don't need to turn to God for help because secular institutions can solve most of your problems. And then finally, freedom. There needs to be enough freedom so that you can vote with your feet and express your opinions without losing friends or business. You need to be free to be able to do that. When all four of those conditions are in place, then you see the traffic moving. That's the theory towards a post-supernatural culture. But if one or more of them is weakened, then you'll see that whole process arrested and possibly reversed. Now, how would you test an hypothesis like that? Right. You need to have a computational model, we think. You need to take a whole bunch of theories that are relevant to these, this causal process. You need to integrate them into a single consistent theory and then implement it in a computer architecture and then run the computer architecture over time. Try and validate it the best you can and then, of course, see if it's true that those conditions being high, those four conditions being high, lead to post-supernatural cultures and weaken some of them and then you go back in the other direction. Does that actually happen or not? And the paper that you're referring to builds those models and runs them and actually shows that the hypothesis that I described holds up. So these computational systems are very powerful ways of looking at non-linear dynamical systems where you've got feedback loops of various kinds. If you Normally, if you're running statistics on data, you're doing regressions or something like that. But these are generally presupposing a, a linear system. But when you've got feedback loops, you have non-linearity. And the sort of methodology you need to study that uh, is uh, the, uh, these computer systems that are perfect for studying non-linear looping systems where you can get amplification of tiny effects under certain conditions. And so validate a model like that and you can use it as a test bed. Now, one final example, of how important are those four conditions? That was a question we had and we used the model to try and answer that question. It turns out that they're individually necessary. If you significantly weaken even one of those four conditions, you can revert back to a supernatural culture. So that's a very interesting insight. You need all four conditions present and strong in order to produce the post-supernatural culture. Right, right. And I think in the paper you mentioned that that's one explanation for why the uh, the U.S. has kind of lagged some of the Scandinavian countries in terms of movement towards post-supernaturalism, in terms of centralization of, of education management in, in Europe and, and locally kind of governed educational institutions in the States. Yep, yep. Locally, uh, locally governed education systems allows local communities to maintain local norms for their children. And as a result, you can suppress the teaching of certain topics like evolution or you can control the way those topics are taught, various things like that, which produces a way, way higher scepticism towards evolution in the United States than you see in any of the northern European countries where you have national education standards. So it's, it's a very interesting, very interesting way to weaken the one of those four conditions, which we think helps to explain, not the only reason, but one of the reasons why the US is more religious than Northern European nations. Right, right. Well, and I think what you mentioned, another one of the, the factors was limiting exposure to information that might challenge one's worldview. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious in America in particular, but all over the world, it seems like the the siloization 
of different ideologies and where people are getting information seems to be accelerating. And I'm curious, you know, based uh, on this work is that it seems like that would suggest that we're, we're, we might be moving towards a regression in at least certain swaths of society towards more traditionalist views of supernatural entities. Yeah, I think that's right. The pluralism is an interesting concept. You can have lots of diversity and you can be hostile about it, or you can have lots of diversity and you can be accepting of it and welcoming of it. Typically in the large cities, you've got more cosmopolitanism, a more welcoming attitude to cultural and religious pluralism. Whereas in the more rural areas, you've got um, much less diversity to begin with, but also a less pluralistic or welcoming attitude to that diversity. What's interesting about modern communications technologies is that you wind up having a fairly large number of sub-communities that can connect across that rural-urban divide. So people living almost anywhere can find people who are like them and then bubble up and get their news from one place and their communication from one place and wind up isolating themselves from the local environment. So the traditional contrast between rural and urban, which has been so important in understanding American society is starting to break down a little. It's still very important, but those communication bubbles are creating islands of plausibility that enable people to maintain their worldviews against right. the general pressure of uh, secularizing culture. Right, right. Well, and I think the other, you know, another phrase from the, from the paper that really stuck out to me was this idea that supernaturalist viewpoints are maturationally natural, right? They're kind of like, that's a, a, an evolutionarily adaptation, adaptive viewpoint. Can you talk a little bit more about that and, and why, maybe also why that tends to move people back towards perhaps supernaturalist beliefs? Yeah, Robert McCauley at Emory introduced that phrase, maturationally natural, to describe the fact that believing in supernatural agents is something that's pretty instinctive for human beings. And that could be a guess, but there's been some great research that's confirmed that guess. For example, if you take people like me who are sort of post-supernatural in orientation and run us through various tests, we look totally post-supernaturalist. We don't believe in supernatural beings or ghosts or causes or explanations. But if you speed up the test so that we don't have enough time to do our compensating things that we do from our training, we start to look more supernaturalist, which means that the supernatural part of us is somehow inbuilt and we learn to resist it through training. Now, this is what it means to be maturationally natural without any special training if you just leave people be and they grow up in their cultures, they'll grow up to be supernatural. In order to stop that, you need to introduce special training. Now, some people see that as unnatural because you're stopping a natural process of supernaturalism. And other people see it as a godsend because it enables you to prevent falling into the trap that your nature makes so readily available to you, namely right. believing in invisible beings. Right, right. That's such an interesting take. Um, and it makes, I guess, a lot of sense as well. Um, I'll have to check out that study. Um, I want to make sure we have time to talk about your, your new and upcoming book um, around spirit tech. Maybe could you just tell us a little bit about, about the book, maybe the origin of the project, and what are some of the phenomena that you cover in the, in the text? Spirit tech's a really interesting venture that I undertook with Kate Stockley, She's a really talented student of religion and she's 
uh, deeply invested in something that's similar to what you're invested in, Casey. I think she cares about the spiritual journeys of people who don't identify as religious. And interestingly, technologies of spiritual enhancement of the kind that we study and talk about in that book are exactly the kinds of spiritual help that some of these people are really looking for. So if there's another pathway that people have in their post-religious journeys, it often involves using these technologies. Now, what sorts of technologies are we talking about? There's neural feedback to help people learn how to meditate more quickly and to create, to help people create through meditation, very profound and transformative meditation states far more easily and more efficiently than would normally be possible. And then there are connections that people can have, brain-to-brain -brain connections or body-to-body -body connections that are mediated by technology that create an incredibly powerful feeling of togetherness with other people. So these technologies are not only individual technologies, they're also corporate technologies. For example, there's group flow and there's technologies that allow you to sync up your heart rate and sometimes even sync up your brain waves with other people in the room. And that can be an incredible experience for people, amazingly transformative. Well, and it's so interesting because I know one of the, I know of an interesting study of a choir and uh, where they basically strapped a bunch of uh, singers and, and a choir up to uh, EKGs and they measured their heartbeats and after you know, a short while of starting to sing, all of their heartbeats aligned. And, right. uh, you know, synchronous movement, synchronous breathing is thought to be one of the kind of endorphin releasing pathways that, that bonds people together in ritual. And it's so interesting that technology can be another kind of mediating factor there besides just, uh, I mean, in some ways, I guess singing is like an evolutionary technology that humans developed to bond. In my research center, it's called the Center for Mind and Culture, uh, Connor Wood, one of the research associates there, has been studying synchronous ritual for some time and ran some experiments on this and uh, noticed a couple of really important things about it. Synchronous ritual, whether it's mediated by traditional practices or by meditation, has the effect of helping people feel sort of surrendered to one another and connected to one another, but it also has the effect of interfering with the ability to solve problems. So the problem-solving cognitive state is actually uh, disadvantaged when you're in that flow state with other people and feeling really connected to them. So you have to sort of snap out of the synchronicity to, in order to be able to get to the point where you can organise the effort required to, to use a group of people to solve a problem. That's a very elegant study, actually. It's a, he's a talented researcher and that double-sided nature of synchronicity is important. But anyway, the spirit tech is especially good at creating those synchronous states uh, in yeah. groups. I, I think that's going to be increasingly important for people for whom traditional religious ways of doing that just don't mean a thing. It just doesn't mean anything. Right. When I know in the book or from, from what I've read, you know, you look at certain like actual physical technologies, you know, like like computer media technologies. You also look at psychedelics and people who are kind of exploring other the past there. And I'm curious, you know, what do some of these actual technologies look like? Like I know years ago, uh, I remember as I was beginning to explore some of this stuff, I read a book called like How God Changes the Brain, which was written by I think Andrew Newberg and, and uh, one other fellow who I'm forgetting at the moment, but Gene Quilly. Gene Quilly, yeah, yes. And 
you know, talking about the God helmet using kind of uh, magnetics. So I'd be curious, you know, can you talk about what, what some of these technologies actually are? And from, from what I remember back then when I was reading through them, it seemed like the science was still kind of developing of like how effective it actually was. So I'd be really curious to, to hear the, your take on, on the state of kind of robustness of where we are with some of these things. Well, I'll give you a couple of examples. First, everyone pretty much knows what virtual reality goggles are at this point. So they know what they look like. <laughs> And that particular kind of technology is used to create virtual religious services or spiritual services. And these are being explored by people who have no religious background as well as people who do. It's incredibly important. One thing about the anonymity of those online services is that you can effortlessly step into the mode where you can share some of your deepest spiritual thoughts with the people in the room. You don't have to wait 10 years like in a regular church right. before you feel comfortable sharing yourself. You can actually share really fast. So the intimacy that you can achieve is incredible. So that's one kind of technology. The sort of technology you were describing with the God helmet has to do with transcranial magnetic brain stimulation. And that looked almost like a motorcycle helmet in the original phases, but there are all kinds of other ways that that's done now, not just with magnetic stimulation outside the brain, but also with ultrasound stimulation, which looks like it might be even more effective in part because it can get deeper into the brain. But those things look like things on the outside of your head that are not invasive at all, but influencing what's going on on the inside of your head from the outside. And then there's... Uh, the sorts of things that you use in neurofeedback, that's got to do with brain reading, not brain writing. And the brain reading requires you to have essentially EEG sensors that attach to your head. Now, you can have one of those complicated 64 sensor arrays all over your head, but you really don't need that for a lot of these applications. To do the meditation stuff, you really only need a set of sensors across the front of your head. So these days, they have extremely elegant uh, commercial products that have a couple of sensors built in that touch the forehead and then loop over the ear with a couple of other sensors back here. And they look almost like a headband. They're incredibly elegant. And you can combine them with the earbuds and they uh, and then and an app on your phone. That's, so it's very, very lightweight and not intrusive at all. And, and it can be used to speed your way towards achieving meditation state. So there's there's three examples, for example. Yeah. Well, and it's so interesting because just listening to these examples and also, you know, the, the kind of concept of psychedelics, it seems like a lot of these tools are really focused on achieving certain states of mind, right? There's certain states of being. And I'm curious, you know, even as these maybe become more commonplace and more widespread, is there a gap where people, you know, of the communal dimension of the kind of theological you know, framework in which to understand these experiences and all of that? Yeah, I think one of the deepest questions that people have about all of these technologies, uh, it has to do with authenticity. Is it really authentic to use something that speeds your way towards meditation states? Or taking LSD or ayahuasca, is this, is this or, or the artificial version of ayahuasca called pharmahuasca, which just has the active ingredients in it? Is doing that a shortcut to bliss? Is the bliss just a silly form of escape or whatnot? So everyone's working with questions about authenticity across the board. 
And because there's a huge market booming here, there's a real worry that commercial interests could just take over and completely ignore questions of spiritual authenticity that really matter to people, not just traditional religious people, but absolutely anyone on a spiritual quest cares about authenticity. I think people are finding solutions to that. The one way is that focusing on the behavioural outputs, you know that old phrase, by your fruits shall you know them, or they're focusing on the behaviour that follows from these experiences. Does it make you a more loving and more peaceful person or not? And if it does, then you'd want to say, well, probably you lean more in the direction of judging that technology as potentially authentic. Um, is it transformative inside your own life? Does it bring you closer to other people? So there, there are a number of different criteria that people seem to be gravitating towards. And because these technologies can support the achieving of those criteria, just as traditional religious technologies can, most people are starting to feel as though you've got just as much chances of having an authentic experience using these technologies as you would by going to a church or a synagogue or a temple and using the traditional technologies of religion and spirituality. Right, right. And it's so interesting. And I know about, I guess like two years ago, I, I was sitting in a lecture by uh, Anthony Bostas from NYU who has been doing a lot of the research into psilocybin there. And he was talking about at the time that they were actually giving psilocybin to clergy to try and help better create language to understand the different dynamics and nuances of those states and, and what they mean. So, so cool to begin to be seeing at least some crossover into maybe some some semblance of, of, of the traditional streams of religion experimenting with that, some of this as well. That particular study uh, was aimed to try and, as you said, to produce language because they figured that clergy would actually have words to attach to these experiences that less trained people might not. But the real force of the research is happening around the health effects. So the, there's a number of different chemicals, including psilocybin, that are incredibly useful for things like calming people in advance of death, helping people overcome very serious addictions, and helping people deal with PTSD and nightmare disorder. These are extremely debilitating problems in our society that occur on a fairly large scale. And these, these particular types of medicines turn out to be incredibly important for addressing them. But interestingly, when, that, when are they most effective? They're most effective when people feel as though the experience they have isn't just an emotional high, but it's a spiritual experience. The more profoundly spiritual the experience, the more transformative it turns out to be, the easier it is for them to break the addiction, the more profound their capacity to control the debilitating effects of PTSD associated nightmares, intrusive thoughts during the day, paralysis when it comes to making decisions and a host of other things. So that tells you that there's a connection between these medications on the one hand and people's spirituality on the other that has profound health impact. Right, right. Well, and I, I'd be super curious, because maybe this brings us back full circle to some of the, the questions we were talking about in the beginning about measures and instruments. One thing I've been reflecting on recently is you know, this whole idea of what is a spiritual experience. And personally, you know, I, I think I I heard people bandy the term around. And then when I finally went on like a longer term silent retreat, like a seven day silent retreat, that term took on new meaning for me because I had 
an experience of kind of freshness and vitality on the retreat that then I now associate with the term spiritual experience and this type of kind of like ego becoming less uh, active and becoming feeling a sense of connection to nature and others, all these things. But as someone who the Casey before the retreat um, always kind of viewed that experience or that term a little bit suspect. It's like, what does that really mean? Is that so? I think my question is, you know, what does it actually mean to have a spiritual experience? And how do you define what falls into that category, especially for folks who may as yet not really have had something that would resonate with that, that uh, vocabulary? That's a great question. It's one of the main topics of my research and uh, something I've written quite a lot about. But one of the things in the research that I did was create a new instrument for measuring the dimensions of spiritual experience. A phenomenology of consciousness inventory for religious and spiritual experiences is what it's called, the PCI-RSE. The PCI-RSE is an amazing instrument because it's based on an existing instrument called the Phenomenology of Consciousness Inventory that Ron Katala produced. It's greatly extended to accommodate specific things related to religious experience and spiritual experience. And what it does, it looks for those features in human experience that are still accessible to awareness, but are as simple as possible neurologically. So they're right on the borderline, but the brain states, if you like, that are just complex enough that we can name them and feel them and sense them, but no lower or we wouldn't be aware of them and no higher or they'd be too sort of philosophical in character. So the right. phenomenology of consciousness inventory is useful precisely for addressing your question about what is the spiritual experience. When you ask people how spiritual is that experience and they give you a rating, that gives you sort of a set of narratives and, and survey answers that are what people consider to be the most spiritual. And then when you look at the phenomenological characteristics, you can see what turns out to be most important to them. And there are a set of really important characteristics, uh, such as uh, altered awareness. That's one of them. And there's a lot. Uh, altered time senses. There's a whole bunch of things. But interestingly, we discovered that those characteristics are not the same for all people. If you break your group into males and females, females have a different set of things that they are willing to consider spiritual than males do. And you also have differences across age groups with older people having quite different views than younger people do about what counts as a spiritual experience. So anyway, there you go. Certain That's things... Yeah, it's so interesting. So it seems like even how in further research you've, you've talked about before around like the degree of spirituality of the experience of uh, like a peak experience kind of connecting to how transformative the changes might be afterwards. Is that true? That runs the gamut for however one understands their own definition of spiritual experience? It's very widespread. There are some people for whom what makes it spiritual is fundamentally its spontaneity that it just came out of the blue and it hit me. And that type of thing I don't consider to be really reliable. Because if you look at the great traditions of spirituality in our species, all of them involve massive amounts of training and work. To, like think, just think of meditation experiences or prayer retreats or whatever they might be. You're working so hard. So eliminating all of those experiences is not authentic because they weren't spontaneous. Seems like a massive right. mistake to me. So, but it's an example of how people can get carried away by something that feels so compelling because it hit them out of the blue. 
what they're really talking about, I think, is that they don't understand the brain preconditions necessary for producing that experience. And if they understood that, maybe it wouldn't look as spontaneous as it seems. In any event, there are lots of people operating with criteria for authenticity that are not by your fruits, you shall know them, you know. And that, that I think, can be a real problem going ahead. Yeah, yeah. And, and so interesting, I think, especially as um, more and more people are experimenting with new containers for spiritual experience and meaning making outside of traditional religion to be, you know, without the kind of frameworks and, and guide rails that existing institutions have. And, you know, sometimes even in existing institutions, things can go poorly, but it does seem often like the wild, wild west. Yeah, I see that on that topic that my concern about this wild, wild west for post-religious people is what led me to found Wild House Publications. The aim of that publishing imprint is to produce spiritual resources for people who could go, who don't really have any orientation from tradition uh, at all and uh, just exploring in this wild, wild west. Well, what does it look like? I mean, the, and the point of the book Spirit Tech is similar. It's to try and give guidance to people either for their own journeys or for people who are worried about their husbands or wives or children or parents who might be getting into this and want some sound guidance. So I'm really committed to trying to help people like that generate the sorts of wisdom that they need to be more stable and more sure-footed in their spiritual explorations. Right, right. And such a laudatory and needed goal, I think, in this in this, uh, in this time we're in. Um, I know we're, we're at time, but before we jump off, I just want to say thanks so much for, for taking the time today. And also, if folks are interested in going deeper into your research or finding out more about your upcoming book, Spirit Tech, or, or The Publishing House, um, where should they look online? WesleyWildman.com is the quickest way in. Okay, fantastic. Well, Wesley, thanks so much for being here and looking forward to perhaps continuing the conversation down the line. Thanks, Casey. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for listening to this conversation from the OpenDiv Summit. For more, check us out at summit.opendiv.org.